Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a very Wednesday show today. Robbie, is that a fair description? <laughs> very fair description. <laughs> Completely accurate. And well, Michael Starr Hopkins and Amy Tarkanian will weigh in on the drop in oil prices and implications thereof. And writer Maxim Lott, who has been on the ground in Russia, actually, he'll share his reporting on how the Russians actually feel about the invasion. He talked to them. Plus, political reporter Eli Yokely is going to show us some of the stats of Joe Rogan's listeners. That will be very of interest <laughs> to the audience. He just has all the listeners in the world, right? So is, is that the stat? Um, all right. Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr, Volodymyr Zelensky will give a virtual address to Congress today and is expected to renew his plea for a no-fly zone over his country and for more weaponry, including warplanes. Yesterday, it was reported that Zelensky reaffirmed that Ukraine will not enter NATO despite the open-door policy and added that Ukraine needs new formats of cooperation. And amid chatter about a potential compromise, the Kremlin said Wednesday that Ukraine becoming a neutral state with a status comparable to Sweden and Austria is being discussed. Now, the tabloids are saying that Putin's days to win the war are numbered before his forces buckle. According to the former commander of U.S. forces, Russia has only 10 to 14 days before reaching their breaking point. That sounds like propaganda. Well, is that even possibly accurate? I mean, it's, I think it, from a commander, it's probably that's accurate. technically propaganda, like it's directly coming from the, a military source, might also be accurate. You know, the idea, previously some Russian sources have been saying that they thought they could pull this off until June, at which point they would completely collapse. But if you believe that his vision of the war, or his special operation, was that he was going to come into Ukraine and that uh, Zelensky would do the same as Ashraf Ghani did in Kabul, and as soon as the forces got close, throw a bunch of money into helicopters and flee, that was, that was, kind of, that was Putin's plan. Yeah. So that didn't happen. And a normal blitzkrieg, you have, a, well, there's no such thing as a normal blitzkrieg, but a blitz supposed to have like four different rows of troops coming in. He just sent basically one row in. And now they're just kind of sitting there. So how long can you just sit there? Well, I mean, they are making advancements. I just think that it's propaganda for, I, I mean, and obviously war is a yeah, lot, it's a all lot of war is propaganda. Ab absolutely. So we want to push this narrative in order to demoralize their military um, and to help boost up the Ukrainian military by saying, look, they're, they're going to cave, they're going to fold, they're not, they're not able to withstand this. But I think it's bonkers to believe that, Russian, that the Russian military can only do, uh, implement an invasion or a war for a matter of weeks compared to how long have we been invading countries and how long have we been sitting there? Years. So to but how well does that go? <laughs> right, well, we I mean, screwed it up too. I mean, it's not sure. what I, I would. It, it's easier to believe Russia would screw it up than us. Right. I mean, also, yeah, but I mean, like, not, but saying that they could only last for what? How long have they been in this well, war? In, this in war? Iraq, it's February twentieth. In both Iraq and Afghanistan, we established air supremacy immediately, and so we had supply chains that could just right. move seamlessly. That we would pay Halliburton, you know, thousand dollars per person per hour, you know, to move soup from Kuwait into Baghdad. And so you can, as long as you can keep printing money, you can keep that going an awfully long time. They, they don't have their supply lines locked down at this point. And so they, it can't go forever. Is 10 to 14 days propaganda? Sure. But it also can't go for 20 years in this situation. No. It's also but, freezing. Right. Like they're running out of gas. Like the, the soldiers were not, the soldiers did not like enlist in order to invade Ukraine. Like there's a lot of problems, structural problems that, that he's genuinely confronting, even if that aligns with some of the propaganda that 
the U.S. and Ukraine would want to put out, right? Yeah, I just their invasion strategy was a mess, too. They invaded from all sorts of different points. All They're spread very thin. I mean, I get that that is the narrative that is being pushed it's out. It's not the narrative. It's it true. Totally it is a narrative. tactically very fraught invasion. I, from their perspective, I think it's actually going exactly the way they expected it to go. I think that we had this envisionment that they were going to go not. in and take Kiev and they were going to go in and take these. And that, when you look at actually the Russian strategy, that was never what they were doing. They were giving Zelensky. That's absolutely false. They were giving Zelensky an opportunity to go to the table and negotiate. The first five days when the Russians went in, they actively were avoiding any sort of casualties, including military casualties. Right. They thought so no. Right. They expect, but they, right. Their strategy was wrong. They expected him to fold, to flee, or to fold. He didn't, and so their strategy was wrong. So they they did get it wrong. Well, they, they miscalculated. Had, well, no, in, that, in that situation, they actually did not, because then they had a, an entire. Most of their soldiers were still behind the border, so they were. That was round two, bringing more of them in. So that actually wasn't a failure. That wasn't what uh, the the Russian strategy was clear. He had. Troops lined up at the border that's, waiting to come that's in for round two. <laughs> no, that's like, that happened. is propaganda. That's what happened. So, it, well, so I mean, now, then that, they came in. That's, that's, that, that's a good point about propaganda because that actually is what Putin's saying. He's like, no, this is going perfectly according to plan. It might be, but it's also propaganda. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, everything at this point is propaganda. Right. So you can't really believe the Russians saying that, no, everything's going swimmingly. But you also can't believe that, oh, yeah, the Russian military. I mean, we're talking about a world power. Are we really going to sit here and say, oh, in 10 days, they're totally going to collapse? I mean, that just sounds crazy. It's a big military. It's a powerful military. How long, how long can, can a military that's cut off from, you know, that doesn't have air supremacy and, is, and has a difficult time resupplying itself. How long can that military... Superpowers have been bogged down and defeated trying to pick off much weaker opposition countries than this. So I don't, I don't see why it's unthinkable at all. I think what's going to happen is in 10 to 14 days, Ukraine is going to come to the table and actually negotiate this out. Well, hopefully it's less than that. Even. Probably. Probably. I less. hope it's tomorrow. <laughs> but what they'll then do is they'll say, see, it was the Russian. It was they'll, they'll spin it like it wasn't Zelensky going in and giving Putin what he wanted. Instead, it was the Russian military couldn't continue on. And so they negotiated. And now there's well, that, now the war. But is that over. might be the case. <laughs> I, I just don't. I think really what's happening is Ukraine is probably actually more likely to start negotiating. Their country they're is already being demolished. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're, that is, the and table. so now they're saying we won't join NATO. That is not something Zelensky was saying up until this point. And now yeah. he's saying we're okay, yeah. fine, stop. We, so if it were true that the Russians were going to cave in the next 10 or fold in the next 10 to 14 days, Zelensky wouldn't need to go to the table. He could just wait them out. But that's not happening. He's actually saying we won't join NATO. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Well, but I mean, many, 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 many more people could die on both sides as this country is slowly or not even very slowly destroyed, which they don't want. And if they're not going to join NATO anyway, and they understand we don't want them to join NATO, they might as well give in to that demand so that like the less of the country per mile gets wiped out, right? And we, also we all want the same thing. Right. And we also don't know exactly what that particular commander means by collapse. And collapse can mean a couple of different things. If you think that it means they'll all just disintegrate and die, well, then no, no. that's not going to happen. But what collapse could mean is that they no longer have the capacity to continue moving forward. And in that case, they have made, I think, far more gains than the Western media is allowing its, its people to really, under, its, its viewers I just don't, to I don't buy the idea of this, like, invincible Russian army. And it's not right. unique to Russia, but all superpowers in modern times have had a lot of, not even in modern times, have had a lot more trouble than they expected, than their own governments expected right. trying to invade and occupy 
foreign territory. And there was a that's a problem we've right. had. That's a problem every major superpower has had. Being a superpower doesn't doesn't make you uh, doesn't make you invincible. Maybe it makes you blind actually to to the other side and, and, and the level of resistance they'll mm -hmm. that they will that you'll face when you invade their country. I just think we're we're operating from the stance that what Putin's goal is is to go in and actually take Ukraine, and that has been the Western narrative being pushed out there that that's his goal and that was he's invading but, the country well but that he's he stated and what many others have stated is that that's not the goal the goal was to well, get he said he's going to overthrow the regime well he was saying that he was going to demon no he all he said was there there he wants them to write into the constitution that they cannot join nato he wants to denazify and demilitarize denazify yeah. and demilitarize is very vague this gives Zelensky the opportunity to come to the table and have some sort of negotiation on what that means exactly. So they could get together and say, okay, what do you mean by denazification? What do you mean by demilitarization? And in which case, they could then make an agreement. It was giving Zelensky an option. NATO's not an option. That is, he is firm on that. He made that very, very clear. No negotiation on the NATO issue. So now Zelensky's saying, okay, fine. We won't join NATO. Now they have to work out what is denazification and what is demilitarization. And we'll see what that is. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, let's negotiate that. And if, if it means that everybody says that Putin is a giant winner and the most wonderful person on the planet. and he, Yeah, what he, a he, wonderful war. They greeted, a, they greeted him as liberators. They greeted him as liberators. It worked yes. all according to plan. Then fine. Well, if that, if that ends the happening. war. Obviously, that's not happening. But I don't know if that was the plan to say, oh, they were going to go in, capture Ukraine, capture these major cities, and then liberate the people. That was never being said from the Russian side of it. So why I, I think the plan was to, I, I suspect the plan was to grab more territory and assume that the, re the regime, Zelensky, is going to to run for the hills, and there will be some kind of more pro-Russian regime that comes out of that, maybe with more direct military involvement or just because now they've taken more territory. I think that was probably the plan, and it didn't go according to plan whatsoever. Uh, anyway, we want to mention the two shows. We were talking about that for longer than we expected. Two journalists working for Fox News uh, were tragically killed yesterday in Ukraine, 55-year-old cameraman Pierre Zakrusky and 24-year-old Alexandra Kushinova died when their vehicle was struck by incoming fire in the outskirts of Kiev. Following the news, a journalist from The New Yorker said it was a tragedy. The cameraman died for a TV network that airs a pro-Putin propagandist. As its top-rated primetime host, Glenn Greenwald, pointed out the utter disgrace in exploiting the tragedy to smear another journalist, Tucker Carlson, uh, presumably, um, yeah, that there's always someone who tweets something like that. Right. Right, when so in the wake of a tra someone dying or something like that. Just... Don't say it. You don't have just, to score. Just don't, you don't have to score just points don't on, say this, it. on somebody's death. I, I'm, I'm sure no one at Fox News is. Ha they're all probably devastated that their colleague died. Like just lay the f off. Yeah, you it's know? like saying that, like people who died of COVID. It was like, well, well, they were anti-vaxxers, so there you go. You right. Know? And it's just, yep. it's, it's, it's yeah, disgusting. It's exactly like that. Yeah. Russia recently imposed some of its own sanctions on top U.S. officials, including President Biden, his son Hunter, Hillary Clinton, Anthony Blinken, Mark Milley, Jen Psaki, and more. Jen Psaki got hit with these sanctions, the huh? Psaki bomb. She was asked, Please. actually, about this at the briefing yesterday, and she said, well, I don't have uh, a bank account in Russia, and I'm not planning to travel to Russia, so I'll power forward. And she also noted that Joe Biden is technically Joe Biden Jr., and so Russia sanctioned his father. <laughs> his father isn't still alive. No. Of course not. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Sanctioned Maybe his the spirit. Yeah. His soul is being sanctioned. So what are they sanctioning exactly? Uh, you know, I mean, what sort of power do they... It's Again, it's kind of like the U.S. sanctioning the oligarchs, I suppose, the Russian oligarchs. Well, how do we do that if they're banking in Russian banks? And then 
Right. Uh, well, they're, vice they're versa. not. Like, that, like that's why they, you know, Chelsea's football team is in so much trouble because it's in England. So they have so many assets in the West that they're they're more susceptible to sanctions. And so if there were, you know, um, the, if Joe Biden had a bank account in Russia, mm-hmm. now Hunter Biden might be like, darn. Can't sell his paintings in Russia? Is that uh, Hunter maybe Biden, he has a Russian uh, series Hunter, of art? Does Yeah, Hunter Biden might be the only one that may accidentally have gotten caught up if he had some Russian account that he forgot to close a while ago. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested but, to find out exactly in, what In general, it's just tro- it's troll. Yeah. Yeah, just saying, well, we're hitting you people. Yeah. But Jen Saki, to include her. I'm sanctioned. No, you're yeah. sanctioned. Yeah. yeah. That's a good, they probably they know who she is because they see her on TV. <laughs> right, yeah, She's exactly, just a very right. visible face. Of, yeah. of, of and her, the, she, you know, the, the redhead. Yeah. The redhead who says things. Add her in there, too. <laughs> also, they know her. She was a State Department spokesperson, too, back under Obama. Oh, right. So they have probably she hated her for a very long time. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we'll tell you what's on our radars up next. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, last Thursday, 30 TikTok influencers were invited to a White House Zoom call for a press briefing about the war in Ukraine and rising gas prices. The social media stars were briefed by National Security Council staffers and Jen Psaki, where they were basically told inflation is Putin's fault. The goal of the White House is obvious. It's to get their messaging or propaganda out to the younger generations who consume most of their information through the platform. Ironically, it's a Chinese-owned platform, but that's a different story for a different day. The briefing seemed to work. Shortly after, many TikTokers, TikTokers began, I think that's what they're called these days, right? TikTokers began posting videos about their invitation and what they learned. So here's an example. Why is gas so expensive and why is the United States inflation rate at a four-time decade high? I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7, and here's what they said. The obvious reason, we are getting out of a two-year pandemic, when use goes up, price goes up. But the call was predominantly about Ukraine and Russia, so how does that relate? Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do an international trade. So with people being scared of war and limited resources, prices are bound to go up as well. For the people who can't pay $7 for a gallon of gas, there's an app called Gas Buddy that shows you the cheapest gas near you, as well as a link in my bio to donate to the misplaced refugees of Ukraine. According to them, one reason that this crisis is specifically notable is because of the size of the invasion, which is the largest since World War II. Second, they acknowledge that this coverage and balance exists for crises throughout the world and encourage us as content creators to use our platforms to highlight different issues as they arise, especially when mainstream media fails to do so. Third, they said that just because something isn't getting mainstream coverage in media doesn't mean that the United States isn't giving aid, whether that be monetary, humanitarian, or military aid to other issues throughout the globe. And last, they said that they hope that this crisis at least raises the public consciousness around geopolitical issues throughout the world, and that even though Americans may not be proud of other things the United States has done globally, that they hope that we can look back on this moment and see how the United States rallied the West to stand up against Russia and be proud of that. And once again, that's what they said. All right, so obviously with only 30 TikTok influencers involved, the White House was selective on who they invited. They likely sorted through numerous accounts to find those who were most likely going to hear the White House's explanations and ultimately parrot them. 
So this would be unlike other press briefings where even hostile news organizations could be in the room and in the end, what they report on and how they spin it is up to them. The White House knows each time they do a press briefing, Fox is going to walk away with one spin to the story while CNN has another. So the entire idea of a curated friendly group calls the ethics of this into question, except are TikTok influencers journalists? Because if they are, then it's a scandal to only invite the friendly ones. But if they're just entertainers, then is it really any different than picking and choosing celebrity sponsors who then promote products or ideas? Then again, one could ask if it's even the job of the government to essentially hire or encourage celebrity spokespeople for the messages they want to amplify. Should the government be doing that? Celebrity spokespeople are common with nonprofit organizations and charities that promote certain agendas. But should our government be engaging in this, or should they just put information out there and then hope the private and nonprofit sector do the promoting. Along these same lines, it recently came out through a Freedom of Information Act request filed by Blaze Media that the U.S. government paid $1 billion to various news organizations to promote COVID vaccines. The Blaze reports organizations such as ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News, CNN, Newsmax, MSNBC, New York Post, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed News, as well as hundreds of local newspapers and TV stations were paid using Americans' tax dollars to, quote, strengthen vaccine confidence in the United States. Many of these organizations silenced any sort of dissent in the process. I personally know writers who worked for some of these even more right-wing organizations who pitched contrarian stories only to be told by their editors, no way. Was it because they were getting a nice chunk of change from the U.S. government, or were there other reasons? Perhaps they were getting a mixture of government cash and big pharma advertising dollars that incentivized them to censor certain information. Despite the latter being a potential violation of the First Amendment, there are some good questions surrounding these two examples we should be asking. I think it's probably okay and even expected for the government to advertise certain things. For example, I would expect and even encourage the government to run ads on how to register to vote and where to cast one's ballot. I think more people need to know how to do these things, and the government should be the one informing them. I think it's probably okay for the government to run advertisements that inform people of the dangers of smoking or drinking and driving, for example. So I think there are times when the government would spend money to ensure the public is informed about certain things. Maybe that's okay. But what level of promotion of certain ideas are we okay with before it becomes too much? If the government spends money on a narrative they want pushed, how do we ensure it doesn't influence the media to halt dissenting opinions in the interest of padding their bottom line? When does it go from good information to state propaganda? And that's the big question. When does it change from this is what the government you know, is pushing, it's fine, they're using dollars to do it, and when does it then cross the line into propagandizing people? Well, I guess in one sense, everything the government says is propaganda. But propaganda can be correct and it can be incorrect. Just like the same was true with this false Russian propaganda, right? It might be Russian propaganda that there are these bio labs in Ukraine or whatever. It's, it is propaganda. It might also be accurate. Right? It, might, it right. might be true. So the same, in the same sense, almost by definition, everything our government says is propaganda. Some things might be true. Some things might be false. I think that TikToking... The TikToking, is that how we say it? Yeah. We, we must sound like we're ancient. Um, but it, it, I, I think it's—I I think you raise very interesting points. And in like, you know, who are these kids that are? Yes, just going to parrot the talking points of the regime. There is nothing new about it, though. It, it, the, the platform is new. But I remember—you probably know this more than I do—the Biden administration or the, the Obama administration mm -hmm. would hold briefings with liberal bloggers like Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein to disseminate 
talking points essentially to them. Now, I'd probably like to think those individuals were maybe more discerning than whoever these TikTok people are, but maybe not. Maybe it was the same kind of deal. Right. And so, uh, and Trump also, like, and it goes back even beyond that. Remember what Trump did, his what, social media summit where he had Ali Alexander and a whole bunch of other like right wing influential. Carpe donked him. Yeah. Remember Carpe? All these influential YouTubers. uh, Obama would have historians uh, so that he could like kind of pitch his message to historians. So historic. They would have celebrities in. Right. uh, And campaigns, or at least uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign I know did and Obama's campaign, I'm sure Jeb Bush's campaign, you know, have people who are on staff whose job it is to reach out to celebrities and organize yeah. them and then get, try to get them. But, that, but that's not an endorsement of that. You're, you're right, right to point out that there's something kind of gross about it. I right, think. yeah. Now, yeah. To the, to, uh, I didn't watch any, any, tic, any of these TikTokers other than the ones that you just played. And to their credit, both of them were fully transparent. Right. That they're like, this is what the White House is saying. Yeah, I don't remember those liberal bloggers actually being necessarily always transparent. Well, if you're a right, TikToker, yeah. it's kind of fun. You know, it, it kind of boosts your credibility, right, yeah. to be able to go out there and say, well, I was invited to the White House press briefing, and this is what, you know. So for them, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's this boost. So, of course, I think they would be more likely to say that because it makes them look more official. Um, but it, it does, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, to me, it feels like, and I'm not, you know, I haven't been around this in the journalist side mm-hmm. of things like you guys have for a long time. And so... To me, it just seems like, as a normal person, that there would be some ethics around this. Like, you can't just invite people that you think are going to be friendly to you. I mean, you'd have to invite everybody. But the government? Situ- well, I would think that they would have they, to, yeah. No, I mean, they can do whatever they want. But I, I agree with I, I will also criticize it the way you're criti- – I agree with your criticism, yeah. but they, there's nothing preventing them from doing – Maybe and, I mean, you could take the position that there – perhaps there ought to be. I might take that position that the government should not be able to use any sort of – resources or tax dollars to do self-promotion. Um, I, w- I was looking at that Blaze story that you just mentioned. Yeah, and that was advertising, basically. Advertising dollars were spent in the media companies. I would possibly be okay with preventing that, or just like I would I would possibly be okay with the government not being able to put up anti-smoking signs. I, that's how I would feel about it. I'm a libertarian. Yeah, it just seems like there should be, and I know when I, you know, my radio days, we had to run a certain number of advertisements that weren't really advertisements, like nonprofit. You know, we had to set aside a block mm-hmm. of ads that were for these nonprofit sorts of entities. So it makes sense to me that every news organization, or every media outlet, I should say, radio, television, print, would have to have a designated section for government propaganda. But everybody knows that's the government propaganda section. Right. So you know this is just what the government wants you to know about. Because there are things that I do think the government should be informing the people about. You know, like how to register to vote, where to vote. That, to me, is the government's job. And because it's not being done, because maybe it's not lucrative for media entities, then they just don't really tell people. But if, but so that's so. I do think there needs to be a way for the government to get messages out to the people. But it also has to be wrapped in a this is from the government. And that right. so right. that to me maybe would then limit. Okay, is it prop? You know, that's like okay then. And the, gov- the government's real goal is, right, to get their message out without their fingerprints on it. Right. right. And that's where I have a problem. That's when I think, okay, this just sounds like propaganda. Because if, the, if this was coming out of, let's say, Russia, we'd be like, oh, well, he just invited a bunch of people that were friendly to him to a meeting. And then they were, you know, to, to go out there and disseminate this information. And 
we would have a problem with that, right? But here we are doing it, and we act like there's no issue here. <laughs> I'm not acting like there's no issue. I have a problem, I mean, I have a problem with society it. Society in yeah. general acts like there's yeah. no well, issue. Well, all governments are hypocrites. I mean, they think other governments are bad and, and just trying to tell you what to think, but not us. Not us. We're the good ones. Yeah. It should be, a dis you know, like in radio, for example, if you're giving away uh, concert tickets, you have to say who gave you the concert tickets to give those yeah. away. You can't just give them away. It's, like, it's a violation. You could lose your licensing. So it's plugola payola. You have to inform the viewers or the listeners <laughs> where stuff comes from. So yeah, but they did do it in that. In they those they two kind videos. of did, right. and maybe they yeah. said you have to mention that this came from us. Oh, I'm like, sure the government know. didn't say that. No, no, they, there's no right. way they would say you have to mention it came from us. They would prefer if you didn't. They'd prefer if you just made it seem like it. of your yeah, own right. volition you came up with this right. idea that credit, everything the administration that. said yeah. was right. And that's right. Yeah. Plagola Paola. They shouldn't yeah. do that. They need, to, they need to tell people. So, All right. Well, uh, Ryan, I think your radar's next. Looking forward to that. Ryan, what's on your radar? So Ukrainian President Zelensky has made twin requests of his Western allies as his country fends off an invasion by Russian forces. First, he has consistently implored for more military aid, including enforcement of a no-fly zone, as well as additional sanctions on Russia and those around President Putin. Second, he has pushed the West to be more involved in negotiations toward an end to the war. The first demand sits at the center of the debate over the war in the U.S. and in Europe as the Allies grapple with how and which weapons to support the Ukrainian defensive efforts. The second demand has met a far more muted response. But on Saturday, an unnamed State Department spokesperson told Reuters that the U.S. was, pre was prepared to help, quote, if there are diplomatic steps that we can take that the Ukrainian government believes would be helpful, we're prepared to take them, the spokesperson said. We are working to put the Ukrainians in the strongest possible negotiating position, including by increasing pressure on Russia, by imposing severe costs, and by providing security assistance to help Ukrainians defend themselves, unquote. So yesterday, I asked Jen Psaki at the White House press briefing what role it was playing in pushing peace negotiations forward. But before playing that clip, you need a sense of the war fever that's running through that press room. So my Intercept colleague, Travis Mannon, put together a supercut of questions from yesterday. And I don't care how jaded or cynical you are about the media and its drum beating for war, this will make the hairs on your neck stand up. Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have made so clear that what they believe they need the most is more warplanes and fighter jets. So why is the U.S. assessing something different? Why well, does the U.S. believe they know better what Ukraine needs than what Ukrainian officials are saying they need the most? It sounds like, you know, we're pretty dug in on our position when it comes to the no-fly zone, when it comes to uh, the MiGs. Uh, despite this growing call, bipartisan call in Congress to shift a little bit. So, to put it bluntly, is Zelensky wasting his time tomorrow asking for these things? President Zelensky is going to be speaking to Congress tomorrow. He's been pushing for fighter jets, a no-fly zone. You have to hear some of those same requests tomorrow as well. Has the administration shift, thinking shifted on that at all? though, calling for a no-fly zone. They're a NATO <coughs> member. They share a border with Russia. How do we view their calls for a no-fly zone? And on President Zelensky's address tomorrow, of course, he is expected to ask for more assistance. As my colleague noted, a lot of the U.S. positions on that haven't changed, as you just said, when it comes to the no-fly zone. But on the aircraft specifically, the Pentagon said last week that Secretary Austin said they do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft at this time. Is that still the United States' position? Would a, a strike in Poland on 
supplies or, or, or anything really, uh, automatically be met with a military, a forceful response, or simply a conversation amongst allies about how to respond. There are reports that a Russian drone made its way into uh, Polish airspace before going back to Ukraine and being shot down. Does a drone into Poland count? Former ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich, has been quite outspoken recently. And she said, we need to mitigate risk, but it's also true that not taking greater action comes with a risk as well, because Putin is a bully and he only understands strength. Is the president showing enough strength against Putin? Putin were to use chemical weapons, would it change the president's thinking when it comes to these MiGs, taking the no-fly zone off the table, but at least on this issue? Are you prepared? Can you give us any more details about what that threat means of severe consequences? And that wasn't even all of them. So toward the end of the briefing, Jen Psaki called on me, and here's our exchange. Go ahead. So aside from the request for weapons, President Zelensky has also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? Well, one of the steps we've taken, a significant one, is to be the largest provider of military and humanitarian and economic assistance in the world to put them in a greater position of strength as they go into these negotiations. We also engage and talk to the Ukrainians on a daily basis. And the president and this national security team has, has uh, rallied the world in being unified in their opposition to the actions of President Putin. So those are the steps we're taking. We also engage uh, oftentimes before and after any conversations that any of these uh, global leaders are having with both Russians and Ukrainians and encourage them to make sure they're engaging with Ukrainians directly. So would Zelensky be empowered by the United States to reach an agreement with Russia and have U.S. sanctions released as a result? Well, he's the leader of Ukraine, so he's empowered to have a negotiation with Russia, and we're here to support those efforts. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of a negotiation, but we are here to support those efforts. We discuss and have conversations with him, with his team on a daily basis. So two kind of related things to talk about. <laughs> Which one do you want to take first? Oh, my goodness. The, <laughs> the war fever is contagious. You can even get it through. Yeah, I was worried I was going to get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very contagious. I'm not vaccinated against it. How about a drone? Does a drone count? <laughs> yeah. can, that, can that trigger a World War III, please? Oh, right. my God. Why are they pushing so hard, do you think, for us to say, okay, fine, we're going to have a no-fly zone, which would immediately result in a war with Russia? I, I, good for ratings. Until we're all nuked. until we're all dead. I mean, that that can't really be the explanation. It feels, in some sense, like the explanation. But. I mean, there's no way that all of these reporters were in there and their you know and their corporate bosses were saying, "Well, you need to right. push for war because we need ratings." I mean, I mean we've long no noted that the mainstream media, despite being you know sort of liberal in orientation, tends on foreign policy toward just extreme hawkishness, even sort of neoconservatism in some ways. And that's been the case forever. That's, that was the case going back to Iraq and Afghanistan. And many of these reporters were from liberal outlets, and they were asking right. these questions. Well, uh, that's right, because the definition of liberal at the heart of an empire is different than right. what some people might think of as a, a liberal person who's anti-war. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's, that's, and, it that's, yeah. and it kind of puts my question in, its, in a different context, because I also shared on Twitter the, just my exchange with Jen Psaki, and a lot of people were like, livid at the answer, and I think fairly so, because the, the, the answer to that question should be easy. Of course, yes, 
we implemented these sanctions in order to defend Zelensky and Ukraine from this invasion. And so if Zelensky believes that he can negotiate a, an honorable end to the war, that, that he believes respects Ukrainian sovereignty, then of course we will lift the sanctions at his request. Right. Of course. Right. But they, she didn't say that, which is disturbing, because then it raises the question, well, do you have a different agenda than Zelensky does here? And, that, yeah. and that's been the accusation, that, that the U.S. enjoys seeing not enjoys, but the U.S. draws an advantage from Russia having a disadvantage of being bogged down in Ukraine the same way that Russia was bogged down in Afghanistan. May, but uh, I but, guess to defend her, maybe she thought giving you that answer was going to result in the she, rest of the classroom like racing to the podium and tearing her limb from limb. Right, that, and, that, and that's why in context it's, right, would she make it out of that room alive? <laughs> yeah. It's like, right, she gets 30 questions in a row about why aren't you bombing them yet. Yeah. What's mm -hmm. wrong with you? And then another question about what are you doing to end the war? It's like, yeah. do what? Well, and, and her answer for all of it was kind of, no, we're not doing anything. Like, for, for all, of yeah. the, all of the questions. Uh, yes, right. And to her great, great credit, she kept saying, we're not doing a no-fly zone. You know, a no-fly zone means shooting. And she would say that. She would explain this as right. if she had to. That means American fighter jets shooting Russian fighter jets out Explain of the sky. Explain it to them like they're small children and they still right. don't get it. Well, they, they just clearly, they have this, uh, again, because I don't think their corporate masters are actually saying to them, go in there and push no, for war no, no. because we need ratings. They're certainly so not. They're clearly doing it from their own, uh, their way of thinking and their perspective on this, right, which is they feel uh, they, they want to go to war with Russia. I mean, they feel like Russia's the bad guy, Russia's the bully. We have to do something to fight back against Russia, literally fight back against Russia, uh, with, which is a very dangerous position to take because I don't think people do realize the implications of that, that that would lead us into a very devastating war. But you asked a great question. What are you doing to empower Zelensky to get out of this? I mean, obviously, the thing to do would be to say, here, we've sanctioned Russia. We've done all of these things. And you can go to the table and say, hey, Putin, if we come to this agreement and, you know, we will lift these sanctions, Nord Stream 2 can start up again or whatever it might be that he could dangle as some sort of negotiation. At this point, he's left with, don't pulverize me. Fine, I won't join NATO. Uh, you know, so, and then, and then Putin has no real incentive to not take Ukraine. Now, they're, they're kind of in a position where, uh, because of the sanctions, they've been put in a position where they have to take Ukraine because they need to control all the oil pipelines and all the gas pipelines. And that gives them that opportunity well, to do that. Allowing Zelensky to lift the sanctions would then give, right. give him leverage in those negotiations. Right. Otherwise... What 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 does he have to offer if he's not right. the one that we don't want anyone to feel like they're we, we don't we certainly don't want Putin to feel like well he's all in at this in for a right. penny in for a pound you have to right. take the whole country it's that or my regime collapses that way that's yeah. not how we right. want Putin to feel about this we well, don't want him to be in the position where right. he has we to continue ramps, this off yeah. ramps yes yeah. yeah yeah because at this point even if Zelensky says okay fine whatever you want. Uh, he's still battling in a war with the, with the right. West, a, a war of right. sanctions. And, and he's got a, He needs a leverage against and I, that. And I also wrote about this for the Intercept, and in that, uh, Rokana said, yes, they like what they need to do is just empower Zelensky. And Hassan Al Taeb, who is legislative director for uh, anti-war organization, said it's also incredibly important that Congress not put these sanctions into statute, because once they're in statute, they don't come out. Because who's the congressional lawmaker mm. who's going to cast a vote to lift sanctions on Russia? Like, there's maybe 10 of them. And so then you have no off-ramp. So now right. you've sanctioned Russia. It's in law. The sanctions can't be lifted. And so then 
and that press room will never let you undo them. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly not. How dare you? Right. Well, I'm just waiting for Biden, since he's not uh, marching us further into war, uh, I'm waiting for the press and, and people to start calling him a Putin. Oh, it's bit. Afghanistan all over again. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Robbie, looking forward to what's on your radar. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, this is an exciting one. So if you've been watching my radar for the last few weeks, you probably know I don't think very highly of the federal government or our elected representatives or our vast bureaucracy. But yesterday, something happened. So, so rare, frankly shocked. The Senate did something I agree with. And it did it unanimously. That's right. In an almost unheard of example of Congress doing something that isn't totally useless or foolish, the Senate voted Tuesday to make daylight saving time permanent. And like I said, unanimous vote. Just for anybody watching, in case it's not clear what happened, this just passed. Oh, the Senate's in a quorum call. This just passed. The Senate is in a quorum call. Let me uh, ask unanimous consent that the Senate exit the quorum call. Without objection. And let me make it clear to anybody who is watching. Senator they, from Rhode Island. That they just saw this measure pass. We have just passed the bill to end the return from daylight savings time to make daylight savings time permanent. That was Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat from Rhode Island, and here's Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts. The Senate just passed daylight savings time to make it year-round. We're walking on sunshine. That's not just Democrats. Everybody voted for this thing. Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican of Florida, was a co-sponsor and hailed its passage as a step in the right direction. Quote, just this past weekend, we all went through that biannual ritual of changing the clock back and forth and the disruption that comes with it, he said in a statement. And one has to ask themselves after a while, why do we keep doing it? Why are we doing this? Why indeed? Twice a year, the government requires Americans to change the time on their clocks. In the fall, we gain an hour. In the spring, we lose an hour. You all know this. You're all doing it. This ritual dates back, in fact, to World War I, and its stated purpose was to encourage people to conserve energy, to conserve electricity. The thinking was that creating an extra hour of light during the evenings would lessen the need for electricity. Regardless of the merits of that goal, changing the time twice a year has extreme downsides that far outweigh any benefit from gaining or losing light. As the Cato Institute's Scott Lincecum explained in his definitive takedown of the system, there are myriad reasons to oppose it. For starters, quoting from Lincecum, the semi-annual time change results in all sorts of maladies in the days thereafter. Car crashes, pedestrian deaths, workplace injuries, heart attacks and strokes, depression goes up, adverse medical events because of human error. So now Lincecum favors abolishing daylight savings time entirely rather than making it permanent. So this question is a matter of personal preference, I think, for a lot of people. Some people would rather have brighter mornings and then evenings where it gets darker sooner, while others want the reverse. They'd rather have mornings be dark, get ready in the dark, but then have the day last for longer, have brighter evenings. I know what I prefer. I certainly prefer the latter. And so I hope the House passes a version of the Senate's bill that the, and then President Joe Biden signs it. What, what the Senate voted to do is the way I prefer it. I think it's vastly better, but we can have a discussion about it. Either way, any, either way you do it, though, is definitely superior to what we currently have. Changing the clocks is the worst of all. Changing the clocks twice a year does not conserve energy. It just makes people late or early, throws off their sleeping schedules, causes depression, irate behavior, leads to more accidental deaths, car crashes. So bravo to the Senate for striking an unexpected, truly unusual blow against pure insanity which is what changing the clocks is. I'm surprised that this actually, I thought this was about the farmers. 
And so you're telling us that this was They're, about conserving energy. I think that's a popular one, like right. rumor or myth yeah. that it was the farmers. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was about saving energy costs. And it's dubious that it even ever accomplished that. The urban legend that my mother-in-law was told was that it was so that kids walking to school in the morning would have more sunlight. And she believed that until she was like 65. Yeah. So that is a important impact right. of the, so, so on, there's less, so, so on the daylight savings time schedule, which we've just started, um, it's, it's more likely to be dark in the morning mm -hmm. and it'll be lighter late into the evening. Mm -hmm. So the people who don't like it this way are people who get up very early, which now I guess now includes all of us who do this morning show, <laughs> and who want it to be light out. My thinking is like getting up in the morning is a pain anyway, and it, you don't make it that much better or worse if it's dark. It'd be nice if it was, it was bright, but leaving work and having it be dark out already is miserable. Mm. Which means I, all winter. Right. I would rather have it be later into the day. Um, Vox has a great, had a great um, Instagram uh, post that was, uh, I'm looking at the wrong camera. Uh, uh, can you guys put that up that is showing how many more uh, late sunrises and, and sunsets you'd have? Um, yeah, there it is. Hmm. So, so under that last one, we get in, in much of the country, you have, suns uh, you, you, have, uh, you have later sunsets. Mm -hmm. And is that the one that we did, that the Senate yes. did? Yes. All right, good so for the Senate. What the Senate did is the one where we get later sunsets. Right. Where you get more daylight in yeah. the evenings, which and is it, the way I like and it. And elementary schools should, most of them they start should just later. Stay later. Oh, they should absolutely start later. It's insane yeah. that they start so early. Yes. So that objection that people raise when they say, well, what about you know kids walking to school in the dark? School should just start later. Are kids even allowed to walk to school anymore these days? Or is that yeah, like not under a I, I've done radars on that, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's largely criminalized, in oh, fact, which gosh, is insane. That's crazy. I was walking to school. Oh, so there you go. No problem. But school, school, sure. yeah, school is like still the only thing that starts on like a farming type schedule yeah. Yeah. that does not match human behavior at all. Uh, you don't, people don't go to work that early. The schools start so early. And a lot of it's to squeeze in sports afterwards right. before the sunset. So pushing the sun right. back a little bit right. could help. So, so hopefully they'll push back. Yeah, like 7.05, 7.10 starting. That, and it better, that doesn't comport with teen behavior at all. I mean, even, right. even like, Thirteen-year-olds are staying up. With teen well, right, right, right. We can't, maybe it can't be noon, but I mean, these kids stay up 10, 11, midnight, and you want them to start school at seven. Right, starting yeah. at seven. Yeah, They're that getting up, up at the five o'clock hour. Yeah. Yeah. It is better to have sunlight later because, like you said, when you get out of work, then yeah. you can still enjoy some sunlight. It, it sucks to be cooped up in your office all day, and then you go outside and it's dark, and it's like I didn't even get to enjoy the sun right. at all. At that point, yesterday was a beautiful day. Uh, I got I got home. I had time to like I went for a run, and then I had dinner, and like there was still like time in the, like it, it was still light out. It was great. So the, okay, you both agree. So I had I had arguments with my other colleagues at Reason. They wanted the morning stuff. So, well, it's a so everyone agrees they just don't want to change the clocks, and yeah, uh -huh. we should right. not do that. But so, it's which way should it stick? And, and some people wanted it uh, preferred it the other way. They don't like getting getting up, getting ready in the. Those dark. are obnoxious yeah. people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, Forget I them. We don't need to. You know, where I'm from in Idaho, in Boise, uh, we're actually in the wrong time zone. So Boise is in mountain time, but actually should be, when you look at the map, should be in Pacific time. So oh, right, it does, that, it does that thing, right? It does right? that little, yeah, yeah, and it cuts Boise out and puts us into, into mountain time. So when we have, the, as the clock is now, when it, when it hits summer, it is light until like 10 
11 o'clock at night. It's great. It's, great. <laughs> it's light forever because we're in the wrong time zone. But a lot of places, I've lived in Indiana, for example, and I don't remember, I, I know while I was living there um, years ago, they did a shift with when it came to daylight savings. They changed their laws, and I'm not sure if they changed it where they stopped doing it or they started doing so it. So Arizona, for instance, does not participate right. in daylight mm -hmm. savings half time. Half the year, they're Pacific so, time. The other half right. the year, they're mountain time. Right. So they, they go from, they're three hours off Eastern time, and then they're just two yeah. hours off. And Eastern. it's still a hassle for them because then they have to figure out when their East Coast colleagues are waking and, up. And yeah. some states, I think including like Florida, some other states, they have passed the, the state at the state level. They've approved bills to do permanent daylight savings time, but they need permission from the federal government. So well, that, why would they need they permission when Arizona and Indiana? I don't. Yeah. I don't know. That's weird. I don't know why they do, but that's. But does the rest of the world do this, or is this just an American thing? So we're shifting, no, the rest... and then like England has to figure out what time are they at now because they just had a time change. Well, you always have to do that with England, though. Right? No, but because I mean, they would different. have to do it again. It's like yeah. Arizona having to figure out. Well, okay, what time are they at now? I don't know. Do they do it on other countries? They yes, they do. They it's different. Some some some, some, do, some, some, don't. some do. But this would so now you, you'd have to figure out what time you are relative. To, if, to the country, but just once, and then it's right. never going to change. Right, and the then changing is bad. Unless they change, like other right. countries. Well, then, yeah. And then we would pressure them using sanctions. But it is true. <laughs> if you look, it's, it's true. The, the amount of mayhem that it causes changing the clocks, the, people die. It's obscene. Yeah. Because of it's things. obscene for people to die for the, something that nobody so, wants. That nobody wants, that doesn't have any positive energy effect. So, it so. messed me up this last weekend because I was watching my show. I like Mrs. Maisel, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the latest episode and it was one o'clock in the morning. And I thought, okay, I think I can watch one more episode before I have to go to bed because <laughs> I don't need to be anywhere until like 11. And I, so I watched it. And then when it was over, I checked the clock and it was like 3.30 in the morning. Oh no, because it, the time had the changed. The only redeeming on thing me. is when, the, when you're at the bar at 2 a.m., on fall. The other yeah. way. The other yeah. way is nice. You get the you extra, get that extra hour. hour, hour, right. hour I'm not at the bar at 2 a.m. anymore. <laughs> the other so. way is nice. But even uh, you know, the it. other day, I, I'm driving to the studio here in the morning, and I'm fiddling with the clock on the road to try to put. I got a and new car. I'm like, accident. how do I change and you my ran clock somebody on this? Over. And then, yeah. yeah, then I ran, ran over a people. And the way to fix the bar thing is to just eliminate the That's two a.m. Yeah, I accidentally killed a bunch of people, and it's the government's fault. It is, definitely. All right. Well, our rising panel is with us next. We'll discuss the plunging oil prices amid the Russia-Ukraine war. Stick with us. Oil prices dropped below $100 a barrel on Tuesday, down from $130 a barrel last week. Senator Bernie Sanders pointed out the dip in costs, saying, why is the price of oil lower today than it was in 2014, while the average price for a gallon of gas is 80 cents more? The answer, corporate greed. Meanwhile, China has signed a $10 billion contract with Saudi Arabia to build oil refineries in China that will be supplied with Russian oil. It's reported that Saudi Arabia is close to accepting the yuan for oil trade with China, replacing the U.S. dollar. China said it has taken an objective stance on Russia as the administration raises concerns over China and Russia's alignment. Here's the Pentagon press secretary addressing those concerns. We've already said that uh, certainly that uh, there would be consequences uh, for China to get involved on the side of Russia in, in that kind of a regard. And I don't, wouldn't want to speculate beyond that. What I would tell, though, tell you, though, Wolf, is uh, clearly, at the very least, China has given their tacit approval to Mr. Putin for this unprovoked war. Uh, they, they said that they're not going to impose sanctions and that the sanctions imposed by others are illegal. They said that they want to help broker a peace, but they've done nothing at all uh, to that end. And they have blamed the United States and Ukraine for actually precipitating this conflict, which just is an incredible 
incredible statement. So we haven't seen anything from China that would indicate or certainly give us comfort uh, that they are going to do anything other than at least provide some sort of tacit approval to Mr. Putin. Our rising panel will join us now to weigh in. Michael Starr Hopkins is director of Waxman and a Democratic strategist. And Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and the former chairwoman of the Nevada GOP. Thank you to you both. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So, Michael, I'll start with you. You know, I think it's very worrisome, of course, how having China and Russia in, in kind of close emotional proximity. Uh, obviously, this deal is concerning uh, and, and, and the what... China has said about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, or said or not said, also concerning. So, so where does this leave the U.S.? You know, how do we handle this? Uh, and, and you know, maybe we take some comfort in in thinking that if China is watching this this invasion and is getting the impression that this was more of a debacle than they expected, maybe it makes them less likely to do some things they might have been thinking about doing. But that's really the only silver lining that I can see. Yeah, I mean, look, historically, we've gone full circle. We now have China and Russia as allies, two countries that were enemies, you know, 30 years ago. And so I think we really got to take a second and pause and look at how China makes the decisions they make. You know, they make decisions in 100-year increments. We're making decisions election to election. And so it becomes much harder to be able to take on our adversaries when they're constantly uh, looking at a long view. And so I think we really need to think about, one, how we go about making sure that Russia pays for the decisions it's made, how we stop Russia from extending uh, its grasp on what they want to be the new Soviet Union. And then as we look at China, how we declare independence from China when it comes to things like, you know, uh, technology chips, when it comes to things like their ability to dominate marketplaces or their ability to create fake companies uh, and put them across the stock market. So I think we really need to take a holistic view. And Amy, what do you make of the uh, Saudi-Russian-Chinese uh, oil deal? Do, are you as concerned as some in the White House would be that this could undermine basically the, the petrodollar system that, that the U.S. has been profiting from for nearly 100 years at this point? Yes, and I think the fact that we are hearing that Saudi Arabia is not taking President Biden's phone call, I think would further confirm that... <sighs> this is actually taking place and it's moving forward. You know, he mentions, Michael mentioned uh, how China and Russia weren't always buddy-buddy, but the one thing they do have in common is world domination and the need for power. And so of course they're going to partner up and do whatever it takes to hurt the United States of America. And uh, I think that, um, <laughs> I'm going to say this, so hold on to your seats, I actually agree with the statement that Bernie Sanders made with uh, regards to corporate greed and, and the way that the oil companies are jacking up the prices. Uh, Michael, as we know, is going to be moving to the West Coast, so I welcome him. But he's going to be, um, you know, he's going to have the unwelcome of the gas prices anywhere from 5 to $7 a gallon, which is which is something that cannot continue. Um, and I just don't see an end in sight anytime soon. Yeah, Michael, um, you know, and, and actually Michael and I are going to be on the same flight going back to L.A. tomorrow and, and enjoying the sunshine and those really high gas prices. I mean, in my neighborhood right now, it's like pushing 
uh, up uh, almost six dollars a gallon. It's it's really really high. Um, but Michael, what do you think the administration should do in order to counter this? What's the solution? I mean, if China and Russia are partnering up, Saudi Arabia clearly is also buddying up to them and saying, "All right, you know, I'll just do business with whoever." Which kind of makes us wonder what our our relationship with Saudi Arabia maybe should shift and change. Do you think? What, I mean, what do you think the administration should do to counter this, if, it, if anything at all? You know, I think there's conversations we had about, you know, whether or not we're going to release some of the reserves. Um, but I think in general, look, international relations is complicated. Uh, Joe Biden believes that we shouldn't be talking to MBS. We should be talking to his father, which I think, frankly, is the right approach given MBS's behavior. But overall, when we think of Russia and China, Look, they are kind of the new adversaries. China's propping up Russia. Russia's economy is in practically default. And so I think we need to keep uh, putting the screws to them. I think we need to make sure that Russia feels the pain and where we can. I need to make I think we need to make sure that China feels the pain as well. These well Michael, I just want to be to... super. Yeah, on that point with MBS, I mean, the reason why Saudi Arabia, one of the big reasons why Saudi Arabia has now started to uh, play footsie and now it doesn't even seem to be footsie, full on date Russia and China is because the administration, the Obama administration, the Biden administration refused to meet with MBS. He, they, I mean, he's really ultimately running that country and it's rude, according to that, you know, to, to their from their perspective to not recognize that. Yeah, I mean, it's also rude to kill Washington Post dict uh, reporters. Like, I think that at some point we have to take moral stands. And yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to hurt the pocketbooks. But things like the child tax credit would at least put money back in American families' hands and make this pain a little less. And those are things that I think Democrats could do. And if Joe Manchin, who calls himself a Democrat, would ever get on board, then you know we could at least lessen the pain of the American family. Yeah, so obviously we, we want to take moral stands ideally we want to be moral we want to you know encourage or reward moral behavior from other countries i think a crisis like this shows how difficult that can be in practice when you know we have such a a wide range so many bad actors but we can't be unfriendly to all of them at once like now we're talking to venezuela now we're you know we want to talk to uh, saudi arabia because russia is this greater concern and it's like we can't you know, we have, do we have to prioritize better, Amy? Listen, I agree with Michael that it was disgusting for, for what Saudi Arabia did to the Washington Post journalist. However, uh, when we had President Trump, he was reprimanded for going over to North Korea. And Kim Jong-un is, is, you know, he's not a, a cakewalk either, and he's not a nice guy. But I think that we're now having to get past the point of are our morals higher or lower or equal we have to deal with the worst of the worst in order to make sure that we can save as many lives as possible and we can have the best deals as possible so i think that this administration needs to be aware of course that we're dealing with evil but they do need to open up lines of communication well amy michael uh thank you so much for joining us Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest recently spent months in Russia, Belarus, Serbia, Ukraine, and Georgia, surveying dozens of everyday Europeans to understand their attitudes on war. Russians reportedly did not take the prospect of war seriously, and post-war, 
most Russians seemed fine with it. Maxim Lott joins us now to discuss the rest of his findings and the geopolitical motivations behind Putin's invasion. He's the creator of electionbettingodds.com and Maxim Truth Substack. Maxim is also the executive producer of Stossel TV. Welcome, Maxim, to the show. So Hi, for yeah, so your uh, surveying found that many Russians are fine with the war. We've heard kind of some mixed things. So tell us what you've experienced in your surveying. Yeah, I think, you know, from the Western perspective, it's hard to see what people are thinking there. And it was just interesting talking with ordinary people, how many of them said, yeah, we think Russia does have a legitimate case here. Uh, no one was, you know, war hungry, like, this is great. I'm excited. We're taking back territory. But people were like, yeah, I feel like Russians are being oppressed in Ukraine and we should do something. And we are. And I don't know how the war is going to work out, but uh, we need to do something. That was kind of the the average view that I got from people there. And, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Maxim, what do they think of the invasion part? Like, how, how do they think through? Because I can understand easily, you know, all, you know, believing all sorts of different propaganda that comes out of, uh, you know, what, you know, comes you know and, and i'm also curious what their what their media diet is like what what you saw them consuming over there but it, it does get hard to say okay well i support the invasion now uh, american voters didn't have a hard time getting to that place when it came to iraq in 2003 so maybe it's maybe it's just that simple but i'm curious what you saw over there Right. Yeah. And first, it's worth noting that plenty of Russians do oppose it. About 6,000 people have been arrested in Moscow for protesting. Um, but there are also lots of people who uh, they probably aren't happy about it, but they kind of defend it. And they say, I, I ask, you know, OK, maybe you feel there are Russian people being oppressed in the east of Ukraine, but why do you need to take Kiev? And, you know, and they one guy I asked about that, for instance, he said, well, there are lots of right wing elements in Ukraine uh, who hate Russians and we need to get rid of that. And we need to take out, you know, their military ability, which they might use to attack Russians sometime. Uh, so those are kind of the Russian propaganda points. And plenty of people seem to buy it. Um, and in, in terms of the media diet, um, most people in Russia don't speak English. I mean, 90% plus. Um, it's only a few percent who might be good enough to like be reading the Western media for fun, so to speak. Um, there were some sites like BBC Russian, which people used, and also Instagram, where everything's just picture-based. Those really helped people get a sense of the Western perspective. Both of those available before the war are now blocked. Uh, and you can get around it by VPN, which lets you kind of trick your computer, your internet provider that you're in a, another country and evade censorship. Um, but a lot of VPNs are blocked now too, not all of them. There's free VPN, which I was using there that worked. Um, but yeah, that's the information diet is restricted <laughs> and people are aware of that, but still it colors your view. Mm -hmm. and, and what, tell us, what can you tell us about how much hardship the Russian people are actually facing as a result of sanctions and the other policies we've put in place? Because we actually hear mixed things about that, too, how, you know, how much this is actually affecting their lives. So, talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, see, the word hardship, there's no one, you know, starving or on the street or like not making rent right now so people life is still going about pretty normal people are still gathering cafes for board games and all this it's it's 
normal life mostly. Um, however, you know, people are people who do have investments are obviously very worried about that. People are worried, like, is our uh, company going to be operating in a month if we're losing all this business? So it's it's more worries that I'm hearing than like, how am I going to pay, you know, my bill? Yeah. So far. And so you, you know, you're known, you've done, a, worked on a couple different projects, uh, but you've done electionbetting.com, which I, I think, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, out of a belief that, you know, there's a lot of pundits just kind of proclaiming things and like, well, if you're confident in a prediction, you, or you can match your level of confidence to some kind of like actually putting money on the table. Uh, so I, you know, I take your um, your estimates or guesses or percentages for you know what outcomes might might be uh, more seriously than just an average pundit. And I, in your Substack post, you you had a, I, I thought were some predictions that pretty closely aligned with you know how I think we might come out of this. But you know, talk uh, a little bit. Walk our audience a little bit through, you know, how you expect this. I think you gave, you know, low odds to sort of complete, but but not in, by any stretch impossible, complete Russian victory. Zelensky defeated or maybe even killed. You know, lo- low odds of of that, but but maybe like a forty percent odds to them working out some kind of deal where you know Ukraine is still basically Ukraine, but maybe the odds of that are even going up now. Talk to us about how you're expecting this this to end. Absolutely. Yeah. First, uh, it might be worth mentioning what the betting odds are, because some of these things people are actually betting on them. They're saying there's a markets. Will Zelensky still be in office on April 22nd? Um, and that's risen to 80 percent. So people are saying it's unlikely there's going to be a total you know, defeat of the Ukrainians at, at this point. And that has risen dramatically as the de- Ukrainians have successfully defended themselves. It went up from 50% to 80%. And um, they're also saying that Putin probably will not be overthrown. Putin also has an 80% chance of surviving the year mm-hmm. in office. Um, and I think that's totally right. And that lines up with my observations that Russian people are not, it's not like true hardship yet. I don't see much revolutionary sentiment, so to speak. You never know what happens, but it's I wouldn't expect like a widespread uprising. Um, yeah. So those are the betting odds. And then I have some predictions as well. All right, Maxim, this morning, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress. And during his address, Zelensky invoked Pearl Harbor and September 11th as part of a plea for additional military aid calling on President Biden to, quote, be the leader of peace. He went on to say the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, but the values of Europe. President Biden is also expected to give an address on the assistance the United States is providing Ukraine. This comes ahead of a trip to Brussels next week for a NATO summit on Ukraine. So how are the odds of this ending, how are they you know, moving? You mentioned that Right at the beginning, there was a lower chance that Zelensky uh, stays in power. That's now it's now pretty high. He's expected, based on uh, the the betting odds, to stay in power. Um, I'm what you know what we're kind of hoping. What seems to be a a likely enough outcome and a acceptable enough outcome, right? Is okay. Ukraine does not join NATO, but Ukraine remains Ukraine. Maybe there's some slight territorial cessation to Russia. And and then I, I guess there's the kind of vaguer questions about denazification or whatever that is. Probably nothing ultimately comes of that. Uh, you know, how 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 likely do you 
do you rate an outcome like that? And are, are we getting closer, do you think, toward, toward that being what we get? Or, but it, it's, of course, possible that could still be weeks or months away, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it's very likely. Um, in my post, I gave it 40% that something like you just said would happen. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's up to, say, 60%, um, because I see both the Ukrainians and Russians are saying we're making progress on a deal. The main progress has been that both sides say uh, we're willing to basically have neutrality as a policy for the country rather than NATO. The sticking points are the territories where you have something like Crimea, which is has long been Ukrainian, but the Russians have controlled it for years and they've even incorporated it as essentially a Russian state. So to that, there's Russian citizens there paying Russian taxes, voting in Russian elections. So they can't give that up. Um, and the Ukrainians also feel like they can't give it up. So that's a, a tricky point for them. And maybe they'll figure out something like, well, we'll just not even mention this in the deal and leave it at the status quo. Um, and that might be a solution, which hopefully they'll reach. I think it would be nice, you know, Zelensky, they obviously want maximum support from the US and they want a no-fly zone and all these uh, dangerous things and that they ask for. But uh, the US can help push things towards peace as well. And that could be useful. Uh, and what do you, just quickly before we let you go, what do you think about the sort of Russian uh, military uh, performance? Because we hear what well, we hear a lot in Western media, obviously, that, oh, this has gone disastrously for them. You know, it's so off track there. And, and that seems to be at least true to some extent. Then we hear, well, maybe the whole the whole invasion's about to collapse because they're not being supplied. It's gone really badly. And then it's like, well, is that just wishful thinking? It's so hard to know exactly whether the the how closely the Western, you know, very pro-Ukraine evaluations of how Russia's performed um, are, are accurate. What's your sense for, for how accurate a, a portrait that's been? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's no doubt that it's been slightly overstated. You know, it's easy to look at anecdotes of a soldier, you know, giving a confession video about how terrible it is. But looking at just the map, the Russian forces are stalled almost everywhere except the south and east where they are continuing to make slow gains, um, which I think lines up with, you know, uh, like, Russian populations in these areas and, and how hard they're fighting. Um, but I think it's a mixed picture. It certainly was a huge debacle for the Russians. They weren't expecting this much resistance. And yeah, I think it's obviously been a mess from their perspective, uh, but they still are making some gains and probably still have an edge in total power. But anyone's guess, I think it, it could, you know, there's a small percent, 10% that this just totally goes the Russian direction quickly and 10% they just collapse. Um, so War is unpredictable. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Maxim. That was very, very informative. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. AFP Fact Check is debunking claims that the U.S. is funding bioweapons in Ukraine, saying, quote, online articles and social media posts claim U.S.-funded labs in Ukraine are developing biological warfare weapons, saying this is part of the justification for the Russian attack on its Eastern European neighbor. But former U.S. officials and nonproliferation experts say the labs are working to detect and prevent the spread of bioweapons and have also helped in containing disease outbreaks. On Monday, Tucker Carlson addressed backlash he's received for covering the claims on his show. Let's watch. 
The New York Times was quick to denounce us for even talking about the subject. Oh, don't call them bioweapons. We never alleged the United States was making bioweapons. We don't know that. What we said is what's factually true, which is there are stores, we learned this from the U.S. government, of Soviet-era bioweapons in Ukraine that for some reason have not yet been destroyed. And in case you missed it, here's the key exchange between Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newman, and Senator Marco Rubio that's currently in question. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has... Uh biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Oh, not weapons facilities, <laughs> research facilities. That are There's dangerous. And that, that if the Russians got, could be a problem. But <laughs> apparently and they, would they already them. had at some point because yeah. they were Soviet. Yeah. Right. This is getting really frustrating. Like, <laughs> and I, it's not, and in that, in that read, it, the uh, AFP is saying that, right, that's a, being given as a justification for Russian involvement. Okay, if Russia's using that as justification, well, no, that is not it. I Wait, don't think there's, that's no, just, there's, there's no, justification no justification for what Russia's doing. Absolutely fine. But I can still be concerned given what has gone on or what we've learned or what we're trying to learn about how this pandemic started. Forgive me for not immediately being comforted by the, the assurances of epidemiologists, scientists in that field that, oh, yeah, all the research there is, is pretty harmless. Well, it's research into pathogens. And, yes, there are pathogens there. And you know, there used to be Soviet pathogens and could maybe kill some animals if it got out and be scary. And, yeah, but don't worry. Right. And the doesn't get me there. And no. the, claim, the claim with the and the concern with the potential Wuhan lab leak is, has not been that it was a Weapon, I mean, maybe there are a few fringe people who say that this was right. some weapons program. But in general, people think that this, if they believe there was a lab leak, they think it was a research facility and it accidentally leaked out of the right. lab. As, tell, as has happened at other labs with happens. other diseases numerous times. And yeah. to tell the millions of people who died from it, well, it wasn't a weapon. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was to them. <laughs> it was just okay. research. It was just research. And then you've got a war zone where there's bombs going off, and we've got a biological research facility, numerous research facilities, she says, right? Right. Uh, so that, like, not very comforting to find out that in the middle of a war zone there are these and research she, facilities. And she gave that answer in, the, in response to a question about weapons, which, so she didn't say weapons, but the question was weapons. Right. And, and then she and, and, answered with, well, there are these biological research yeah, and at some that, point, that, that are dangerous. Yeah, the, these are not, the, this is like the gain-of-function distinction. Okay, you want to say it's not, tech, you scientists want to say, well, it's not technically gain-of-function, even though what you're describing sounds like you helped a virus increase in its ability to function. To function. Right. It's a semantics but issue. It's a semantics totally. issue. And I hate when they play semantics issues. Yeah, because really all she has to think is, well, we don't have a weapon there yet. I mean, they were trying right. to make one, but they didn't quite get to the point where we classified it or, as or a weapon. Or maybe they so did, and they're just, because their motives are pure, therefore it's not a weapon. Like, it, weapon That's is what kind of... Said, right. In, Department in, of right. Defense versus Department of War. Right. <laughs> right. 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 The time that we went from basically a defensive posture 
to an offensive posture is when we, when we switch from, from <laughs> Department of War to Department of Defense. Right. <laughs> and, and what Tucker said in that clip, and again, I'm, I'm sure he's probably said things I disagree with at various points about this and other issues, but he's saying, yeah, we don't know for sure. And it sounds like we don't know for sure. Or maybe certain intelligence officials know for sure, but they're not I sharing hope. that with the, yeah. <laughs> but with actually, the American people. It sounds like, you know, because he was saying, well, we said that there were Soviet-era uh, uh, facilities, right? Yeah. Well, Victoria was saying uh, we have biological uh, research facilities that we're afraid of, you know, the, the yeah. Soviet <laughs> descendants getting, which doesn't make any sense at all. So actually, I think Tucker, had he actually made the original claims, maybe would have been more accurate even than saying it was mm -hmm. Soviet era, uh, because it sounds like it, it's not just Soviet right, era. Right, because you asked that question the other day. You're like, why would it, why does it take them 30 years to shut down whatever Soviet production there? Yeah. And if I'm understanding this correctly, they're now saying, well, they're, they're at those labs, they're doing research maybe on what the Soviets have, or other kinds of research. Again, research, to they can say it's to prevent the outbreak of disease, and, and, and fine. Yeah, I'm sure they're functioning, they're, they're thinking what they're doing there is is research to prevent the spread of disease, and maybe that is all they're doing. The and, building and, but was built in the Soviet era. That's building was built, yeah. So it's probably ugly <laughs> that's looking. That's when they. It's probably a really ugly looking <laughs> building. Right. Uh, we can we can pretty much guarantee that. <laughs> it's yeah. not a good yeah. Yeah. Not which is not to say anything. Um, Does not approving. justify bombing it. I wasn't even going to go, oh. <laughs> but not to say anything approving of uh, our own half our buildings in Washington, D.C. look like they were built by the Soviets. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why. They're very ugly, but um, totally what are you do? issue. Well, meanwhile, China has joined the controversy accusing the U.S. military of operating such kinds of labs in Ukraine, which Bloomberg called a conspiracy theory. And they didn't just join it. Like The, the, the thing that has the U.S. upset is that this was leading Chinese propaganda for weeks that they were saying that you're doing all of this research. Yeah. Right. They collaborate with a lot of our researchers. I'm sure they had good intelligence about <laughs> what's going on there. Yeah. And so their propaganda had been that, you know, Ukraine has these dangerous weapons labs. And uh, so I think the U.S. is now frustrated that they have, that they're now saying, that then they're now caught in a semantic argument about what kind of labs right. they have going on. I mean, Do you think Rubio point. thought he was going to, that Newland was going to say, no, that's, that's a this is a lie. There's no bio, there's no biological. Yes. That's what he thought she was going to yes. say, and he's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Wait, the, oh, there are things. There afterwards, I'm sure they were Rubio. You've got the briefings. What, what kind of question was that, man? What are you doing? But also, yes, Putin has used this as propaganda. China has used this as propaganda, but it, it wasn't by any means their leading propaganda. Like right. their leading propaganda was their their Nazis. Right. Uh, yeah. what, what were the other? I mean, what, well, the how do they one justify was NATO, this? But to the Russian people, really. The NATO, the NATO and the Nazis. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Nazis was the big one for the Russian people, to get the Russian people on board with the war. It was the, the U.S. that did have, Antifa have super you, soldier WMGs. Vladimir Putin. Yeah. I, yes. have, I have several friends in Russia. I have Ukrainian family, actually, who've left Ukraine. But I have friends in Russia, and uh, and I have to say that so that people don't say, Kim's a Putin puppet. We knew it. She's got friends in Russia. I have family from Ukraine. Uh, when you're not on camera, she just you just speak in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> English, English, English is really good. Call gotta, gotta say. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, but when I ask them, so how do you feel about the war? And they, they give that answer. Well, we have to do something about the Nazis. We can't just let the Nazis run Ukraine. So I do think that propaganda yeah. has stuck pretty well with the yeah. Russian people. And I think that was kind of the excuse. But it works very well with the American people, too. It, it, <laughs> Got to get, get Fox News off the air because it's all Nazis. Nazis that's, what right. the left, that's what liberals say. But certainly I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is, a, is even much discussed in Russia, the, the bioweapons labs or the... Right, I think it's more to troll the West. 
because yeah. Yeah. the West very famously waged a war, or one, one country in the West, us, waged a war in Iraq over weapons of mass destruction. Uh. And so, I, you know, all, all politics and all geopolitics is trolling at this, yeah. at this yeah. point. And so, and Putin loves to troll the U.S., loves to troll the West. And so I think partly it's like, look, we found more biological weapons in Ukraine than you found in Iraq. But this is just... None, but none of it's serious. Another like, conspiracy theory that's not a conspiracy theory. No. So when are we just going to stop labeling things conspiracy theories and just say there's this theory and we need right. to explore it and maybe it turns out to not be true and then we could say it, yeah. it wasn't true? But so many of these conspiracy also, theories make end up being that true. Are Kill us potentially all. kill us yeah, all. Yeah, they jump. People j jump the gun on this one, saying, "Oh yeah, there's nothing. No, no, this is all about like." Sounds like okay. they still are. They're still holding. Slow on down to here. What are they doing? <laughs> Aren't we a little concerned <laughs> can about? Can we them get now? Victoria back on the stand? And could she elaborate a little bit on what I kinds really of would like them to stop making dangerous things in labs, please. Yeah. So you don't kill us all. Please. But pause. they're saying pause. they Just have pause. to make the weapon so that they can right. then disarm I, the yeah, weapon. Right. So it's like build yeah. the bomb so you could disarm the bomb, yeah, right? You've got to train argument. the bomb yeah. squads. Yeah. How do you train the bomb squads? You have to build bombs. Yeah. So you've got to make the biological gonna, weapons. They would so that bring you can back learn. dinosaurs to kill us all if they could. They'd because let them leave because the you have to know how to defeat the T Rex. <laughs> I saw that on TV. Like, how would you know if you don't create it? Everything that happens in the movies happens in real life eventually, right? I keep comparing. Uh, well, we got to wrap. But I keep comparing Fauci to like a Kyburn from Game of Thrones, who who brings back the uh, mm. the, the corpse of the the mm -hmm. big mountain uh, fighter guy, yeah. just doing little experiments, just tinkering. Let's see how this goes. Just uh, you know, oh, it's not gain of function research. I'm just bringing people back from the dead to serve in my army. Well, he is getting old, right? Maybe he's maybe he brought himself back first. Uh, oh, now now we're getting into conspiracy territory. <laughs> All right, we it's should. It's not wrap a conspiracy until it's you have to right. <laughs> right. More rising right after this. Joe Rogan, famed UFC commentator and host of the wildly successful podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, has come under fire for discussing controversial topics, including inflammatory rhetoric and sometimes COVID-19 skepticism, in addition to interviewing equally controversial guests. Well, a new survey from Morning Consult hints that perhaps politicians shouldn't be focusing so much on his content, but rather on his 12 million and counting subscribers. The survey revealed almost half of those polled who identify as, quote, avid fans of Rogan also lean Republican, but less than half of that voted for Trump in 2020. And men tend to be big fans of Rogan as compared to women. Kim Iverson aside. <laughs> Here to parse through this latest research is Eli Yokely, a senior politics reporter at Morning Consult. Eli, welcome. Good to be here. And Eli, among the arguments I've made around this, this has kind of been central to it, which is that if he has 11 or 12 million viewers, even if you don't like him, like even, even grant that, there's still an opportunity to reach millions of impressionable people. And I think impressionable is key because it's hard in our media environment to find a lot of people who haven't already made their minds up on a particular issue. And it's, and it's fine to talk, talk to those audiences, but you're not going to move them one way or another. What, what's your sense of how uh, movable his audience is? Well, about half of them voted for Trump. That means the other half didn't. And a good chunk of those um, Americans um, didn't participate in the electoral process at all. I mean, this is a um, what looks like an untapped audience. A good chunk of them are men. Almost most of them are men. And a lot of them are really young. And look, I mean, Democrats in the last election did pretty okay with men. Um, they, 
but they need to continue that. And, you know, politics is one on the margins. And um, whenever you have what is um, almost 11 million fans and counting them, that's just the folks who listen to his podcast, not the ones who follow him and other and other mediums who, who were part of the survey. And that's a good chunk of the American people that is sort of being ignored uh, by the political process or is at least ignoring the political process back. Yeah, and the, the mainstream media in many cases will treat Joe Rogan like some kind of plague to be gotten rid of. And, uh, and again, if, if that can be your attitude that he's just very bad and very toxic, but I think you risk, and this is kind of what you know you're pointing out here in, in looking at the demographics of his listeners. You know, you risk alienating a really massive chunk of people, or making those people feel that well, if 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 liberals, if the mainstream media, if Democratic politicians are demonizing me, then I guess maybe I do just then identify as a Republican, and it's a very it's a very pushing away kind of approach. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is not the audience of Fox News at night. This is not the um, audience of uh, Nicole Wallace, the MSNBC mom. This is a group of Americans who seems to be rather politically disengaged. Almost three in 10 of them didn't vote in the last election. And so yeah, that's why you saw in the last contest, Bernie Sanders went on there and spoke to his audience for about an hour. And Bernie Sanders loved the interview. Um, Andrew Yang went on there and for the first time, very early in his campaign, and it helped him raise a ton of money got him a lot of attention that got him on the debate stage. These are these are people who are receptive to messages. Um, and right now, they're just not hearing a lot of it um, from the left. That's why it was such a big deal when Dr. Sanjay Gupta of CNN went on there and talked about vaccines. Um, this is an audience that is that is listening to these conversations. And if they're only hearing they're only getting their cultural commentary from commentators on the right, whether it be on Joe Rogan or on uh, some of the barstool platforms online, um, it's no wonder that, that Democrats have not performed well with them. Um, but it is an opportunity. There's, there's opportunity in this group for both sides. You know, it's, what's really interesting, you bringing up these political candidates that were on Joe's show, is he's been a fan and I believe even maybe voted, if I recall, for Bernie Sanders, who's a big fan of Tulsi Gabbard, a lot of Democrats. So it's really interesting to see that much of his audience, what was it, 54 percent that were Republicans? Um, so about half are Republicans, but the other half are independent and Democrat. So there's certainly an audience to tap in there. But what's interesting is that with him still supporting Democrat candidates, he's got this big Republican audience, uh, half or a little more than half, and yet they haven't canceled him. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, I think a good chunk of these folks are politically disengaged uh, to begin with. And so um, bringing Democrats on, the kind of Democrats he's brought on, by the way, Folks like Bernie Sanders have had reach in some of these more conservative communities. Tulsi Gabbard, um, I mean, that's a whole can of worms in politics, <laughs> but she's on Fox News every night almost, it seems. Um, Andrew Yang is sort of a different kind of political candidate that was able to reach out to this audience. Um, the, this is not an audience that seems to be striving for uh, Mitt Romney every day. I mean, it's it's an audience that's, that seems to be um, on sort of the, the new um, growing uh, part of politics that that both parties seem to be um, not totally leaning into today. And can you also talk a little bit about the both the, the class, race, and like ethnicity demographics that you found on among Rogan's listeners? Yeah, look, a lot of his listeners are white. Um, that, that 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 is a uh, pretty clear fact in this finding. But compared to folks who don't listen, there was a pretty significant size of Hispanic voter Americans who make up his 
audience. And, and when you think about places where Democrats struggled in 2020, I mean, the Hispanic American population is one uh, that was definitely a weak spot where Republicans even saw some gains in places like like Florida. Um, th- these these are voters that seem to be open to, to moving um, their postures and uh, are ready to be tapped into. And they're they're list- a good chunk of them, at least, are listening to Joe Rogan. Yeah. And how's, how does it compare to the overall population? Um, it seems, I mean, this would be significantly because of the age of his listenership, but it seems in some ways disproportionately Hispanic relative to the rest of the population. Is that right? Yeah, that's for, for sure. That's, if we, we compared it to non-Rogan um, uh, fans in our, in our analysis, but it was a, a pretty sizable gap when almost a quarter of Joe Rogan's um, fan base is Hispanic. Um, that, that that is certainly um, outside the norm of a lot of different audiences. And and what what about on the on the class front? Because my theory on this has always been that you know people who work in the quote unquote knowledge economy aren't able to multitask. They're not able to listen to a three hour podcast while they're also having to be in a Zoom meeting, for instance. Whereas if you're an Uber driver, you work in a kitchen, you work on a construction site, you, uh, you can actually multitask. You, you if you've got window time, you need something to kill that window time and nothing better than a three or four hour podcast. So what did you find when it came to the class demographics of his, his uh, listenership? So you're, you're telling your editors, you don't listen to podcasts at work. That is uh, uh, reaching out, <laughs> uh, you know, about seven in 10 of them um, are um, less than college educated, uh, give or take. Um, it's actually not a big gap between the, the, the audience of, of non fans that we surveyed. And so there, there did not seem to be, in our numbers at least, a big class difference. There were small, um, sort of along the margins, differences when it comes to, to income. But in terms of like education level, um, these, these Rogan voters seem to look a lot like the folks who don't listen to Joe Rogan. They're just a lot younger. I mean, that's the big difference yeah. here is this is just a very young, uh, predominantly male audience that um, sort of goes across the spectrum of class and income in America. Do we say how politics. old they are? How, how young? Uh, most of them are um, under the age of 45. Um, so this is a... This We're still is young, a, right? Yeah. We're still like young. young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're still young. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time to listen to a three-hour podcast every day. but we So we listen to the highlights of Rogan when we play them on our show, and that's enough Rogan content for us. <laughs> but uh, Eli, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Yeah, anytime. Tomorrow on Rising, we prompter issues. Tomorrow on Rising, we have another great show for you, but sadly, it will be Kim's last day in the studio great tomorrow. Great to have you here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll still, still be with us tomorrow. Yeah, well, and I'll, and I'll see you guys just yes. in my normal form. And you know, Friday, digital. which is totally taped on Friday. Right. Don't forget that. I, yeah. she's, Kim I, gave away the game. She told the audience <laughs> once that it's uh, not a live show on Friday. I think they figured But I think we are out. doing some live content You guys are. I, I, I think Someone I'm going to be... We're going to be sleeping. And <laughs> okay, I'll be here for Because <laughs> this, this is early for me being here. You yeah. know, this is like I'm, I'm on L.A. time still, but waking up bright and early here. So it's like 715 for you now. Yeah. Right now at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Brutal. It's still early. <laughs> well, and then we had the time change. So I'm actually even because I haven't adjusted for that either. For so, yeah. Permanent daylight savings time. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. We, everybody, we did it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been definitely a lot of fun. So um, I'll be here tomorrow. And you guys be sure to like, share and subscribe so you never miss a video. 
And if you're more of a podcast fan, of course, look at this. Ah, we're so cool. Yeah. <laughs> we're available wherever you listen to podcasts. So be sure to do that. Um, uh, you know, Spotify, iHeart, where do people do? iTunes, every, all over the place. So, all right. Thank you so much Stitcher. for watching. It's on Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher, right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.